One year, my voice teacher, Lori, could tell that I was pretty nervous coming up to our annual Christmas recital. In those moments, she turned our uh, lessons more into a sermon than being a voice lesson. She became more of a preacher than a voice coach. And one day during lessons, she just she stopped me and attempted to calm my nerves by telling me this story. One of her other students had prepared to sing, What Child Is This? for their Christmas recital. I'm assuming you all know this Christmas carol I'm talking about. It's, it's pretty common. But Lori was saying that this student and her, they practiced and practiced and they rehearsed and rehearsed the song over and over again until the fateful day came for the recital. The student walks to the middle of the platform and Lori begins to play the introduction on the piano. And and I kid you not, this is what Lori said happened. The student started singing, What child is this? 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 For the entire song, she said. He only remembered the first four words, the poor guy. He forgot the words, he knew the tune. But for the entire song, that's what the people heard. One day, Jesus was cornered by a lawyer. This guy was going to ask him a tough legal question, one that threatened to get Jesus canceled, depending on how he responded. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The lawyer thought himself pretty clever to engineer such an enigma to test Jesus, twirling his handlebar mustache in delight. But Jesus didn't hesitate to answer, almost as if he was hoping someone would ask him, or perhaps since he was the one that was on Mount Sinai and gave Moses the commandments, he already knew the answer. Jesus replied, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law and all of the demands of the prophet are based on these two commandments. Jesus would go on to say that if anyone does these two things, they are not far from the kingdom of God. Ever since Jesus made that decree, the vast majority of Christians have struggled to live by it. Many, I think, know and have memorized by heart the first part of what Jesus said, the part about loving God. That seems most reasonable in a religion, that we ought to love God, but it's the second part, the part about loving your neighbor as yourself. That's the one that gets forgotten or ignored or put up for debate. And in my opinion, what ends up happening over time is that many Christians end up sounding like a kid that only remembers the first few words of the song, yet keeps singing the song anyway, embarrassingly cluing everyone else in to know that they know the tune, but they're revealing that they've forgotten the rest of the, of the words. I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord, I love the Lord. It's cute when a kid messes up a Christmas recital in a spectacular fashion. 
It's a bit less cute when Christians walk around touting their love for God, yet neglecting the other part, the part about loving their neighbor. Everyone knows something's off, and you begin to wonder if that person knows they're forgetting something. James saw it in his church, and it troubled him. Troubled him so much that of all the things he could have decided to write to all the churches, he decided to air his congregation's dirty laundry. It all began when two drastically different kinds of people personified and two men visited the first Christian church of Jerusalem. The vague reason for the gathering puzzles scholars, but I'm led to believe James has in mind an ordinary Sunday morning worship service, not unlike what we're doing right now. One guy is decked out in all the extravagant ornaments of wealth and prestige and their time and culture, a gold ring and fine clothing. Today, he'd be pulling up in some fancy car and maybe wearing a a Rolex watch and a three-piece suit. His wife would have a, a Gucci handbag. They're obviously loaded, and they're giving rich Uncle Pennybags, Mr. Monopoly, a run for his money. Mr. Bling and his wife, Miss Bedazzle, come into the sanctuary, and everyone is tripping over themselves to want to talk to them, whether starstruck or envious, maybe a bit manipulative or hoping to gain something from them. Everyone is fawning over them, James says. Mr. Bling and Miss Bedazzle instantly become the center of the tension. Everyone wants to become best friends with those two people. And they're saying, hey, come sit right here in the front in the special seat, the best place to sit, the most comfiest pew or the coziest chair. And don't worry about pouring your coffee. I'll go get it for you. Cream or sugar? And don't forget to leave a review on Yelp and tell them that I was the one that greeted you. Meanwhile, another guy has simultaneously waltzed in the door as well. And while all the eyes are on Mr. Bling and Miss Bedazzle, a poor man in shabby clothes, Mr. Penniless has entered right under everyone's radar. And unlike the other guy, this man clearly hasn't passed go and collected his $200 in a while. And everyone thinks that he just probably needs to get a job and stop living off the government. But today he's pulled up probably in a bicycle that's held together with duct tape and a prayer. And he's wearing ragged clothes likely purchased from the nearest thrift store or Goodwill. And he walks around in shoes that are covered in dirt, and he's looking and smelling like he hasn't showered in a while. And being Midwesterners, we'd politely say, well, he's just hit hard times. And while Mr. Penniless is looking around this congregation of Christians, he's left on the margins, on the outside, looking in, essentially invisible. And the only time anyone in the church engages with the poor man is to deal with him. Like his presence is an inconvenience or a nuisance or an embarrassment. And so they say, you get to stand over there or you get to sit at my feet. This is a passive-aggressive, coded way of directing the poor man to the worst possible, most uncomfortable seating in the room. 
Let me break down what James is trying to say. He's witnessed in his church. Let me translate it for you for a second. On a fairly consistent basis, when the body of Christ gathers, these two guys who are either likely intrigued visitors or new converts, again, that's up for speculation, they've entered the sanctuary, and because of their naivete, both of them are a bit lost on what to do next. And their uncertainty alerts the regular attenders, the greeters and the ushers and the deacons and even the pastors to get to work. This is so far so good. But what irks Pastor James to his core is the stark contrast and response by these churchgoers. James' own brothers and sisters in Christ to this scenario. The rich guy gets escorted to a place of prominence, while the poor guy gets sentenced to a place of humiliation. The rich guy actually gets a place, a chair, a cushion to sit. The other guy only gets standing room only or a place in the dirt floor. If this were a plane, the rich guy would be ushered to first class, while the poor guy gets shoved to the back in coach. What's happening here is what in the Old Testament, in the original Hebrew, would be called receiving the face. It means making judgments about people based solely on their external appearances. You've likely heard it today called judging a book by its cover. Interestingly, because there's no Greek word equivalent for it, the writers of the New Testament, including James, they had to invent their own. For receiving the face, favoritism, partiality, discrimination, take your pick on an English word for it, but it's always presented in scripture as a byproduct or a result of a fallen sinful world. It's also presented as not being characteristic of God. God is impartial. But God is always beckoning humans to emulate that, to be impartial like he is impartial. So let me give you a story. Have you ever heard the story of Samuel anointing David? The prophet Samuel goes to Bethlehem and he looks in the faces of Jesse's sons, starting with the most obvious candidates, the oldest and the strongest and the most handsome, but he's commanded by God to anoint the least likely contender, the young, out on the margins, shepherd boy named David. Have you ever heard this story before? You know why God says the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let me give you another example. Have you all ever heard the story of Jonah? He's guilty of receiving the face in a spectacular way. Your response makes it sound like you've never heard the story of Jonah. Um, when, you, when, he, when God called him to preach to the city of Nineveh, his opinions and his prejudices about the Ninevites, they bubbled up and overruled his willingness to obey God, and he ended up in a fishy situation. Thank you. I was really proud of that joke. Thank you. Here's the gut punch of Jonah, and it's the similar to the gut punch of James this morning, is that Jonah's theology, what he understands and thinks about God, collides with his receiving the face mentality. He let his prejudice overrule his theology, despite his theology actually being airtight. And he started doing things at odd, 
at odds with the core beliefs about God, including running to Tarshish. Jonah knew that God was the loving and merciful God. Jonah knew that God would forgive those Ninevites. Jonah's theology was excellent, but his praxis, how he put it into practice of his theology, that's the problem. Jonah didn't want God to show grace to them. Jonah didn't want to be an extension or participant of God's love for them. And this is exactly what James is saying is happening in his church. James's people know exactly what God expects of them, yet they are still choosing to ignore it and do their own thing. They're still choosing to receive the face. They are the ones choosing who they want to love and who gets cast aside based on their personal preferences, not God. James says, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? They have essentially usurped God's role as judge and delivered their own verdict on who deserves dignity and respect and honor and love, not God. And this is all based on the garments people are wearing to church. In the first century Greco-Roman world, attire was one of the clearest indicators between the haves and the have-nots. This was baked into society. The church just inherited it. They didn't create it. It was born into this. It was bigoted, and it was crooked, and it was sinful. It was not of God. It was a product of a fallen world. But this is the world that the Christians lived and operated whenever they left the church. But James's problem is that they are bringing it into the church and into their interactions with other people. And instead of being more like God, who is impartial and fair and equal to every person, they're actually living more like the world, which is biased and bigoted and self-centered. And James's most concern is that it's happening in their home court, not just at home and not just at work. When they're gathered as the body of Christ. And James sees that this is starting to have a ripple effect on all of them. It's starting to actually distort their, their theology. James has previously said that a religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is one that is preoccupied and dedicated to taking care of the most vulnerable in society, widows and orphans and foreigners and immigrants. This includes those who are destitute it and poor. It includes anyone that's been marginalized by society. God is especially close and near to them because the world has rejected and forgotten and even exploited them. And time and again, God has beckoned his people, whether it's the nation of Israel in the Old Testament or the church in the New Testament, to do the same. But James is saying that the people are currently doing is at odds with a good and pure religion. They should know better. It's in direct violation and conflict with the will and heart of God, the same God that they read about in their Bibles. And while the church may pay lip service to God's devotion to the least of these until they cease dishonoring the least of these by their actions or start caring for them, they will always be at odds with their theology, their beliefs about who God is and God's agenda in the world. Their theology will always be warped and crooked out of shape, no matter how much they try to love God, it will always frustrate them, and it will frustrate others. 
But James adds one more insult to injury. James says they'll be the laughingstock of society because they're acting foolishly. They're not only inaccurately thinking about God, they're also inaccurately thinking about who they believe that they're trying to woo. Those who've been trying to flatter and fawn over, they're the ones stabbing them in the back and making their lives miserable. They've been seduced into a fantasy that was prevalent in the first century of trying to just get a leg up in the world whenever and however they could, that the ends justified the means, and they thought that maybe through effective networking or getting a quick pro quo or simply being in the good graces of these rich and powerful people, these Christians Pastor James is talking to, they think that they can profit from favoring these wealthy and influential tycoons and celebrities But James has a wake-up call for them. They can't, and they never will. The ones that are favoring are mistreating them and harassing them at work and in the public square and in the halls of government. They're the ones they complain about all the time at church potlucks and Pastor James' office. They're the ones that are specifically, James says, dragging them to court, concocting fraudulent lawsuits, and bribing the judges to rule in their favor. And the cherry on top is that they're blaspheming and making fun of and mocking the very name of our Lord Jesus Christ openly and without apology all at the same time. James is saying their flattery is backfiring massively. It's getting them nowhere and they're not thinking clearly. It's a slap in the face to the vulnerable in their society. And their experiences with these folks are starting to have a regressive effect on their Christian maturity because they're learning more from their oppressors than they are from God. They're imitating them and their relationships with others instead of imitating Jesus who treated everyone equally. They're rubbing off more on them than the Christians are rubbing off on them. But the smoking gun for James, the most alarming piece of evidence, is that partiality is a violation of what he calls the royal law. It's that second part of the song that I was talking about earlier, that second part, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. James remembers that story that the Lord had with that lawyer, and he takes it pretty seriously, believing that the two things Jesus said are the bedrock of everything Christians are supposed to live by. Some treat what Jesus said concerning love for one's neighbor as an afterthought or as secondary. But something that significant that they forget is that Jesus said that thing in the same breath. It wasn't tacked on later. The love for other human beings oscillates at the same frequency as a love for God and the mind of the Son of God. They're connected and they're linked. And for James, if Jesus, as the Messiah and King, has made a decree, then all the king's subjects are expected to live by that if they want to live in his kingdom. That's what makes it royal. And every subject will be held accountable to it. All of them. You can't pick and parcel out what you want to believe and not to believe or do and not do. It's a package deal, all of it. And for those who keep the whole law but fail in one point have become guilty of all of it. The decrees of King Jesus aren't like a checklist where you can just cross out six out of ten and you're good enough. No, it's more like a pane of glass. And just one crack in the whole pane is broken. 
we cannot only love God and not love our neighbor, nor vice versa. James's colleague, the Apostle John, will say it this way in 1 John 4. If someone says, I love God but hates a fellow brother, that person is a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we cannot see? And he has given us this command, those who love God must also love their fellow believers. James has that same idea in the back of his mind. Friends, acts of partiality and favoritism and discrimination, whether it be in our attitudes, our postures, our actions, our rhetoric, the things we post online, if it's based on, it's, if it's based on dress or skin color, gender, age, physical appearance, political parties, education level, blue collar, white collar, you fill in the blank, all of that is fundamentally incompatible with people who genuinely love Jesus. If in doing so, we are not treating our neighbor as we want to truly be treated, which is with the full honor and dignity of every, that every human being deserves because they are created in the very good image and likeness of the triune God. This is why James takes favoritism so seriously. Partiality is ultimately, above all else, a dehumanizing act, and it is not permitted in Jesus' kingdom, and it will not be tolerated. This behavior seems unimaginable and maybe unconscionable to many Christians, but I think Pastor James then and now wants us to pause and sit in the uncomfortable reality of this, this, that this is not an isolated incident. It has repeated itself throughout church history in different parts of the world and a myriad of different flavors. And I think we need to come to grips with that church. We don't need to change the narrative but realize its crimson stains on our history and re realize where it still lingers today. It well may have, have a hand in stirring in the rampant division and hatred and hostilities in our world right now. The church still pilgrims through a world that would have us pick sides and choose favorites and hate with vitriol those who are not on our team or on our party or on our church or on our club. And before we start pointing fingers or concocting our own alibis, can we just sit with Pastor James, who I think he himself feels a tad guilty, depending on how you read this, and consider the plank in our own eyes before we start noticing the speck in the other person's eye. Now, James ain't the judge, nor is he some sort of spiritual cop. He's just a pastor shepherd and a carer of souls and so am I and so while I share many of James reservations and fears I also share in his optimism that this doesn't have to be this way church that mercy triumphs over judgment that God will forgive us and forgive our past prejudices and give us grace to make a change I've had many conversations with folks who say they want to return to being a quote Christian nation I want to make the case that I think James, that James is making that if we want to be a so-called Christian nation, it starts not by lobbying our local constituencies to get our government officials to enforce certain laws. It begins living to the best of our abilities with God's help to the decrees and laws of King Jesus. 
especially what he said about loving our neighbor as ourselves. That's what it means to be a Christian nation, folks. That's how we live to be God's kingdom. That's how we build it here on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, as much as I admire and remember our founding fathers, I don't think they get to decide what makes a nation Christian. Only King Jesus does. And King Jesus says to you and to me, love God and love your neighbor. He's the one who decided and determined the Bill of Rights for his kingdom and there ain't any amending of it. If you are preferring to love only the people in your lives who are easy to love, who match your ideal picture of something to love, who look like you, who sound like you, who vote like you, who share the same opinions as you, or you may think that you may somehow profit from, I think you are dishonoring some neighbors in your lives and disobeying Jesus Christ. I am too, and we all need to work on that. And in obedience to our King Jesus, we must build among ourselves a genuine counterculture in which the values of the kingdom of God rather than the values of this world are lived out. Love, true love of our neighbor, it charts a path much different than the paths of favoritism and prejudice that our world preaches. It draws a circle and it says everyone always is included, not just the people that I deem worthy of being included. It means truly loving all of our neighbors, even the difficult ones that we often prefer not to, the ones that vote differently than us, the ones that we consider to be our enemies. It's refusing to pick and choose or play us by a biased game of eeny, meeny, miny, moe to choose who gets the worthy of God's love and our love. No matter if it makes us uncomfortable or forces us to come into contact with those we deem as enemies. And I believe if we do it, church, we'll draw closer to the heart of God. I've told you before my definition of love. Love is the alignment of the will with the desire for union with someone or something. Love is a desire and a want, a longing for something, and that something is a union and fellowship with God. But love is also the alignment of our will, making our decisions and choices in perfect alignment with that desire for union. And whether it be a Kit Kat bar or my Kansas City Chiefs, which I know play at noon, I'm almost done, my family or anything, it's not true love until my actions and my decisions will match my desire for fellowship and union with my neighbor. When Jesus said, love your neighbor, he meant that we need to make concrete, tangible, real-world decisions and choices that bring us into some semblance with a relationship with them. Picking and choosing who to love is not true love. Only thinking about doing is not true love. What decisions and choices do you need to make or change in your life to love your neighbor? Maybe it's not turning a blind eye anymore or to anyone. Maybe it's a willingness, however difficult and uncomfortable it may be, to listen to the stories and opinions and, yes, even the criticisms of all of our neighbors, even the ones that we don't commonly associate with. Maybe it's cutting ties with those we prefer to love in the past. Our relationship with that person or that group or that entity, it's become toxic and it's eroding our love for all of our neighbors. Maybe we just need to reevaluate that love. Maybe we need to let that love go. Maybe we just need to think about that for a moment. 
Maybe it's making an actual effort, not a passive thought, but an actual move in a new way to help the most vulnerable. Those that are nearest to the heart of God in some way, it'll probably be unpopular and uncomfortable. But God came near to us and took on our flesh, and it didn't bother him. I think I've shared this story with you before, but I just love this story, and I want to share it again. Young, handsome Lieutenant John Blatchard stood up from the bench and strengthened, strengthened his army uniform and looked through the maze of people in Grand Central Station, New York. He was looking for the woman he knew, but whose face he had never seen, the girl with the rose attached to her jacket. His interest had begun 13 months before in a Florida library, and taking a book off the shelf, he found himself intrigued, not with the words on the book, but the notes penciled in on the margins. The soft hand writing reflected a thoughtful soul and insightful mind. And in front of the book, he discovered the previous owner's name, a Miss Hollis Manuel. While with time and effort, he tracked down Hollis's address, and she now lived in New York City. And he wrote a letter introducing himself, inviting her to correspond. But the next day, he was shipped overseas to serve in the Second World War. And during the next year and one month, the two grew to know each other over the mail. Each letter was a seed falling on a fertile heart. A romance was budding, but Bletcher, he requested a photograph, but she refused. She felt that if he really cared for her, it would not matter what she looked like. The day finally came for him to return from Europe. They scheduled their first meeting, 7 o'clock p.m., Grand Central Station, New York. Oh, you will recognize me, she wrote. I will be wearing a red rose on my jacket. So at 7 o'clock, Blatchard was there in the station looking for a girl whose heart he loved but whose face he had never seen. Just as he was about to give up hope, a young woman wearing a pale green suit, came walking towards him. She was tall and slim and beautiful. Her long, blonde hair laid over in curls over her delicate ears. She had blue eyes, and her lips were full and gentle. She was just like springtime come alive. John started toward her, forgetting that this woman did not have a rose on her jacket. And as the woman drew closer, a small provocative smile curled her lips. Going my way, sailor, she said. John instinctively took a step closer to her, but then he saw behind her Hollis Manuel. She was standing almost directly behind the beautiful woman, a woman well past 40. She had graying hair tucked under a worn hat. She was more than plump, thick-ankled feet thrust into low-heeled shoes. The lady in the green suit was quickly walking away from her, and John felt as though he was split in two. So keen was his desire to follow the lady in the green suit, but yet so deep was his longing for the woman whose words touched his heart and that comforted his soul. And there she stood her pale, plump face was gentle and sensible. Her gray eyes had a warm and kindly twinkle. John did not hesitate as his hands gripped the small copy of the book that would identify him to her. And he thought to himself, this might not be love, but it might be something just as precious, a long-time friendship to whom I could bear my soul and be ever grateful. 
John squared his shoulders and snapped a salute as he held out the book. And even though he admittedly felt choked or a little up with bitterness at his own disappointment, he said, I am Lieutenant John Blatchard, and you must be Miss Hollis Manuel. I'm so glad that you can meet me here. May I take you to dinner? The woman's face broadened into a smile. She said, I don't know what this is all about, son, but the young lady in the green suit who just went by begged me to wear this rose on my coat. She said that if you were to ask me out that for dinner, that she'd be the one waiting for you in the restaurant across the street. <laughs> Friends, we can't control if our neighbors are Christians, but we can control if we're Christians to our neighbors. Find a way to love difficult people, Bob Goff says. Now, you'll be living the life Jesus talked about. We need to love everybody always.